teachers are leaders. And we're here to emphasize the good in education, one practice, method, idea, or trend at a time. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Teachers Are Leaders podcast, brought to you by the Warren Instructional Network, and I'm your host, Andrea Coachman. We are back again for another episode, and today is especially special to me because I am with not only a colleague, but also someone I consider a friend, Debbie Jarzombic. Debbie, thank you so much for being here with me today. Good morning, Andrea. I am so excited to get to chat with you today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so a little bit just about your journey in education. So I always find it so interesting to to look back and see the different roles that people have played in education. And so for you, in a district, you have not only supported people. So I always think of it like, you know, the 30,000 foot view, 2010 down to like the end classroom. So you have been at the district level as a director, as a coordinator, a principal on a campus, supported principals in that like principal supervisor role. But then, so this stuck out to me the most. You have taught, you've been in classroom with students at the elementary middle school within the ESL classroom and at the college level. Yes, yes, I have. That blows my mind. I think that there's, you know, so many people who have different perspective. Like I only taught high school, but then worked with middle school and high school. But so to have that perspective of where students begin to where they finish, I just think that is, that's pretty amazing. That's awesome. It's been a pleasure. It also means I'm old. Oh, get out of here. I think that means you're seasoned and you have a lot of experience and perspective to offer. That's a good way of putting it. (laughs) But then, so outside the district, currently you work as an independent consultant supporting districts with their needs, but also you have authored the strategic prompts for scaffolding readers you were one of the original authors of Ready Rosie, which this I think is so cool because it is like, you know, in my mind, I think about Bill Gates and that like you and Emily started that in a living room. So like, I mean, the ground level getting that started, that is awesome. <laughs> that was a fabulous experience. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure. But then in, in addition to that, the work that you've done in district and then seeing a need, you work to create a word structure screener for intermediate grades for those teachers to help identify struggles, gaps, needs within where their phonics and word study has come. So it's a whole class, 30 minute, easy to facilitate screener to help teachers identify what they need to do. And that just came from you saw a need within the districts you were supporting, right? Absolutely. And um, heard from teachers that they wanted to be more prescriptive in their words instruction and supporting students in their vocabulary development. So during COVID and lockdown, I had some time to work on this project. Spent a lot of time digging into that. And then had an opportunity to contact my colleague, Cindy Wadley, who's working on a the technology aspect so that this word structure screener data can be disaggregated 
through a technology program. Yes, and that is awesome. And I've talked to um, talked to Cindy about that. I think you know there's there's such an emphasis currently, but in general, on you know that phonics work for our young learners. But as they get older, it's kind of like you know when I encountered students in high school who couldn't read, it was like, well, what do you mean you made it this far and you can't read? So it's like, you know, what do you mean you're in that intermediate grade level and you're still struggling with you know that word study, that word work? So having a tool to identify that and then, and making it easy to facilitate. I think that's awesome. And I just think that that, you know, really speaks to the work that you're doing. You know, when you're on a campus, when you're in a classroom, you can, gosh, the word I'm looking for, um, you can impact the students that you're working with, but then the, the more broad you go as a coach, as a principal, as a coordinator, as a director, then you're able to impact more students because you're impacting more teachers. So even now the work that you're doing with districts, it's even more of an impact. So I just think that is, that is super awesome that you just haven't stopped, right? Like the, the work that you're doing, it's amazing. Well, Andrea, I've always been very passionate about continuing my own professional learning. Uh-huh. And I think it's as educators, it's incumbent upon us to maintain currency and an understanding of best instructional practices, particularly since there's been so much brain research since the MRI and the DTI were invented that I feel like we always wanna be pulling in best instructional practices that are rooted in brain research. So I find that captivating. Yes, And that kind of drives some of my work as well. Yeah, well, I think that is clear. I love that. Okay, so thinking about the work that you've done in in classroom in districts to support other districts think about well and you know what it doesn't have to be that it could be your own but talk to us about a favorite memory like what is it that has stuck with you about your work in education or your experience in education honestly it's probably no surprise that my favorite memory relates to reading <laughs> and um when i was in school from first through 12th grade. I attended eight different schools. Oh, my, wow. my father worked for a big corporation. And so we moved a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the reasons that I love Jacqueline Woodson's book, Each Kindness, because it's about a girl who's new in the school, because I was always the new kid. Well, in first through third grade, I went to the same school and it was a small in a small town in Southern West Virginia. And my second grade teacher, I vividly remember her reading to us daily from the Boxcar Children series. Yeah. And I absolutely loved that series. And so when my daughter, I had my daughters with each of them, we read that whole series together and just so many good memories associated with that. So then fast forward to when I was a junior and senior in high school and I attended high school in Brownsville, Texas. And I had an amazing teacher, Mr. Erickson, my English teacher, and he used to read excerpts from classics to us each day, like To Kill a Mockingbird, The Pearl, Great Gatsby, um, so many other pieces of rich literature. And I so enjoyed his passion for that literature. And as a result, I ended up majoring in English in college because I had such a passion for reading um, literature. And that kind of connects to my, one of my passions 
is supporting teachers and enhancing children's vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Because we know the read aloud is a great springboard for teaching strategies for adding vocabulary. For sure. And once a child reaches a third grade reading level, we know that the most powerful way to improve the reading comprehension is through vocabulary development. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, this Thursday, I'm going to work with a team of fifth grade teachers through a PLC, and we're going to be looking at some data. And having looked at it um, ahead of time a bit, I know we're going to be talking about ways to enhance um, vocabulary in their students, creating a word-aware classroom culture where the students are talking about words. That, that's one example of how my childhood memories have impacted my work today. Yes. Well, I think that is, is very clear that that passion and that experience then transferred into the work that you do. I mean, from, you know, again, in the classroom to outside of the classroom, but then continuing after the fact, after you, you know, left a district and then, but continue to work with multiple districts supporting the work that they do. And I think that, you know, talking about a read aloud, and I think it's interesting for you specifically because you mentioned elementary, which I feel like we hear a lot, like a teacher reading aloud to students, you know, giving them access to those grade level texts and focusing on specific strategies and, you know, modeling those things that then they can apply. But I like that you also mentioned high school because it reading aloud to students and, and modeling those different strategies and skills and fluency and prosody and all the things, it doesn't stop at, you know, it doesn't stop when they get to middle school or when they get to high school, it can continue. And I think that sometimes that's, gets maybe just gets pushed aside. I don't think it's forgotten, but I think it gets pushed aside. <laughs> well, truly it is a time thing and I'm very respectful of time constraints. But when we think about reading aloud, we don't have to read an entire book. We can right. just read a small excerpt and get students fired up about um, the author, the writing style, the topic. But just a little book talk with a piece of the work read aloud can be really powerful and can be contagious. Yes. Well, and I love that. And I think, and I feel like for you, you know, because you also mentioned um, the coaching piece, right? Like how do we help build capacity in teachers to then impact more students? And that, that coaching piece is huge. And I think that, you know, you bringing in your passion, whether it's for read aloud or, you know, the, the word study emphasis and building that vocabulary, I think that 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 your attitude about it and your approach to it is also powerful. So, you know, working with teachers, whether it's in the PLC or, you know, a small PLC, one teacher bigger than that, being able to coach in, I think is a very powerful tool in education that sometimes gets, I don't know, looked over maybe. Possibly. I would agree with that. And um, one conversation topic that I've been having frequently with principals and with teachers and PLCs and such is that that translation of all of the information we're getting through the Texas Reading Academies yes. into application, how we can do that. And I like to talk with them about that table in their classroom that they sometimes call the guided reading table. Mm -hmm. And I'm encouraging folks to think about that as a small group reading table instead of just a guided reading table. For sure. That table can take on 
so many facets that um, we want to consider. And it's the purposeful intent of how we use that table that's so important. It may be a guided reading table where we're using level text and students are working with the teacher on strategies related to that. It may be a phonics support yeah. table where we are developing, maybe we've got um, third graders who are um, having trouble with vowel teams when they're reading within continuous text. We may decide, well, I'm gonna reteach some um, specific skills related to vowel teams, and then we're gonna read decodable text. So that takes on a different angle. Or it may be a fluency-focused small group reading table where we have um, second graders who are learning English and they're still absorbing the nuances of our language and they benefit from modeling through a shared reading experience. So that may be the intent of the small group table. Or we may have fifth graders who are masterful at decoding words, but they have limited vocabulary. So they may benefit from a vocabulary focus at the table. Or so often I've seen first graders who can recognize the first 50 high frequency words on flashcards, but when they get to continuous text, they're not recognizing them with automaticity. So that may be the focus of our small group table. So I just don't want us to limit that table to a guided reading table. And I think the nomenclature matters. What we call that table matters. So I'm hopeful that we'll um, more often use the term our small group reading table as opposed to our guided reading table. Yes. Well, I think that is a prime example of taking something from a very granular view and then maybe extending it up to that 30,000 foot view. Because when we say small group table, you're not limiting the things that you can do to support those students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we want to be responsive and prescriptive. So what we notice as we're working with small groups in terms of the students' skills, in terms of what they are able to do and where there are gaps, that's going to drive how we use that table and what the focus of that table is. We just don't want to get so ingrained in reading levels that we're not looking at the broad band of behaviors that those levels represent. So we can be intentional in um, supporting students and just what they need to get to that next level in reading. Yes. Well, because that's ultimately the goal, right? Is that because of the behaviors that are identified at a level, you can zoom in and you can help students where they are with the goal of moving them forward, moving them up, you know, to wherever that is with their grade level, you know, the the skills that are required, the the things that they're asked to do. So then they are successful moving forward. So true. And we never want to forget that when we talk about a level, Mm -hmm. students aren't levels, books are levels. Yes. And that level represents a set of behaviors Mm -hmm. that a reader will be developing while they're using a text at that specific level. Uh, students can typically access a band of levels of text. Um, It depends on their background knowledge. It depends on their vocabulary. Mm -hmm. So we think about their sets of skills that we are going to work on as we work with them in that small group setting. Well, I especially loved what you mentioned at the beginning. So thinking through 
like reading academies and and all of the things that teachers are required or asked to do district initiatives you know this the the current research whatever it is but you said translating information into action and i think that that is well one it makes it very easy to see that you are passionate about that but taking all of the stuff that teachers are given all of the different buckets that they have and are filled but then moving it into action and i think that is what is most powerful if if a teacher can't because of time because of you know other other things misunderstanding or um just not having had it before you know new to a grade level new to a district or campus whatever it is having someone to help them here's the abstract make it concrete i think that that is where you know we get the biggest bang for our buck that's where we see teachers move and then therefore those students continue to move forward in you know their their understanding their knowledge their you know ability to read and to apply the different skills and strategies absolutely and honestly what you've just described andrea describes my body of work now love it um getting to sit in a classroom with a teacher in his or her own room look at his or her own data and have informal but intentional conversation about what that data show is a need for um, the students in that classroom, a real passion of mine. And I am so respectful of the work teachers do. Teaching is hard mm -hmm. and teaching takes so much time. If I can ease a little bit of that burden in terms of time and bringing current research into the practical, then I will feel like I've done my job. Oh, yes. I love that. I feel like I always love to take notes during these just because it helps bring me back and, you know, remind me of the conversation. And then of course, add the notes to the end of the, <laughs> of the episode. But I, I find myself as I'm writing through our conversation, I have a bunch of stars and a bunch of underlines of things that I'm like, <gasps> Yes, like this is that. I'm like, tell me more, Debbie. Tell me more. This is awesome. I love it. As responsible educators, we're constantly looking to audit our practices Absolutely. to ensure that we're using the most current brain research that tells us the best ways to teach children to read. And we don't want to be stagnant in what we do because no. we're continuing to learn. And I hope I spread that mindset is that we're lifelong learners in terms of best instructional practice. It's not that we've been doing something wrong. It's no. just that we're going to audit what we're doing, revise, refine, add new tools to our toolboxes so that we can best meet students' needs. Yes. Well, and I feel like I always, I like to wrap up each episode with a, you know, okay, so what does this information mean to the masses, to, you know, other consultants or campus leaders or teachers, but I feel like you just did it right there. We are, <laughs> all of us, whatever the role is in education, our job is to continue to learn and to continue to refine our practice and build up our tool belt and look at the research and see it. And, you know, then take that into action and move forward with the work that we do. So thank you, Debbie. Well, thank you, Andrea. I will say that I think sometimes 
just that informal conversation with teachers mm -hmm. to be the most powerful professional development. I have to share that I got to work on a project with Wiley Blevins. Yes. He, um, he, he became a friend. And it's interesting to me that he also grew up in a small town in West Virginia. So we connected there. Of course. But some of my own personal best professional development was when Wiley and I would sit together at lunch and just have conversations about what we were doing in our work. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful to me. And I hope that I can um, share that with teachers that I get to work with. Just through conversation, we can, um, you know, two heads are better than one. Let's collaborate. Yes. Well, I always love that. Like um, the, oh gosh, what is that saying? Like the, the smartest person in the room is the room. Absolutely. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Uh, well, thank you, Debbie. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your insight. Thank you for just sharing a little bit about, you know, the work that you do and the passion that drives you. Um, I know that you are on our website. I mean, as a consultant on our website, but is there anywhere else where if anybody wanted to connect with you, they could find you Twitter, LinkedIn, what's your favorite? I'm on Twitter. Okay. Awesome. So I am on Twitter um, and they can contact you. Perfect. I don't have a website. Well, but I don't, I, use I, don't I use yours. <laughs> it is perfect. And honestly, I do a lot of my professional learning through Twitter. It's who I follow and what articles. I mean, I follow Wiley Blevins, Tim Rosinski, Mel Duke, and they'll mention an article. And that's often how I'm made aware of what I need to be reading. Yes. Ditto, ditto to that. I feel like I, uh, I've absolutely used Twitter in my professional life as a, as a tool to figure out what is going on. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. I am absolutely, I will put in um, a link to our consultant page, to your bio and your Twitter handle. If people want to connect and see, you know, who you're following and what you're doing on Twitter. And then um, just our information from this. Thank you. I really appreciate you and your time. What a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Andrea.